Steven Pinker, noted psychologist at Harvard, has referred to my guest today as among the most important influential psychologists in history, and certainly the most important psychologist alive today. Hello, I'm Ashwin Chabra, Chief Investment Officer at the Institute for Advanced Study, and uh, it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Danny Kahneman uh, from Princeton University and Nobel Laureate in 2002 for his insights um, from psychological research into economic science, especially concerning human judgment and decision-making under uncertainty. Uh, Professor Kahneman, welcome to the CFA Annual Conference. We are still in the midst of a global financial crisis. And um, one of the other keynote speakers here is, of course, Professor Farmer from the University of Chicago. Um, both Professor Farmer and the University of Chicago um, in many ways associated with standard economic theory, the rational agent model, um, and behavioral finance in many ways um, is concerned with deviations from the rational agent model. Um, firstly, do you think that the criticism of standard theory in light of the crisis is fair? Well, you know, I'm not an economist, so uh, I should it's the better part of wisdom for me to make a few comments about economics as, uh, as necessary, as really essential. The criticism of the standard model really came from, you know, Chairman Greenspan himself. I mean, he said that something was wrong with their assumptions. Whether it is behavior economics or agency theory or some that really can help explain the crisis, that is a quite separate question. I happen to believe that Behavioral economics is not the major source of explanations for the crisis. In one of your other interviews, I believe you mentioned that delusional optimism is one of the forces that drive capitalism. Many people don't understand the risks they're taking. So um, I think a question that one may ask is, um, then how should, how should the average investor proceed, both in navigating this crisis and what can we do about delusional optimism well, I mean, delusional optimism, I think, is mostly observed in, in people who are making decisions where they have some degree of skill. So when we speak of delusional optimism, we really speak of entrepreneurs more than of people who are saving for retirement. Uh, entrepreneurs are notoriously and, you know, in some ways very helpfully optimistic, and it's the optimism of entrepreneurs and major investors that, that certainly is the engine of capitalism. Uh, individual investors have very little business being optimistic, I think, and financial advisors to individual investors, there is very little virtue in their being optimistic. Uh, the, you know, for the financial advisor, the, for, I'm sorry, for the, an individual investor, the very act of choosing stocks on his or her own account is really highly optimistic in light of what we know, because most of the evidence indicates that this is something individual investors by and large cannot do. So, um, so is the lesson that um, we know that entrepreneurs um, are caught 
at times delusionally optimistic, CEOs may also suffer from the same overconfidence bias. Um, and perhaps the role of the financial advisor, the investor, um, and even the fund manager is uh, to be wary of that and, and not let this infect society. Well, I think unquestionably, you know, the, the, there must be people to put a break and there must be people who have an objective view on things. There are many reasons why within organizations, within large firms, uh, an optimistic CEO and optimistic views in general tend to be helpful to execution because we don't discriminate very well between goals and forecasts. And, and so if you want to have demanding goals, they tend to be associated with optimistic forecasts. This is really part of the dynamic of organizations. None of this applies to investing, and it shouldn't apply to investing. So um, I think in your book you, you, um, you talk about you know, humans unlike econs. And econ is a term that uh, I think uh, Dick Taylor, yes. um, uh, where you have the mythical uh, person who actually is rational within um, and, and always makes the right decisions with perfect information. Um, Not so, necessarily perfect information. I mean, the rational individual makes optimal decisions given the state of information available to him. Yes, so within yeah. the information yeah. available, they're making what we call rational decisions right. within a theory. Um, and, and you sort of point out in the book that you know, humans, unlike econs, need help. Um, so you know, the whole concept of libertarian paternalism um, raises a lot of flags in people's minds um, of sort of the government being overreaching and, um, or, or, or people trying to, to constrict free choice. And this, of course, leads to more ideology, uh, you know, questions on ideology rather than a, a, a reasonable solution. Uh, so my question really was, have you seen this work well in a certain area, a certain country? Well, which can serve I, as a model. You know, I think the criticism that you mentioned is indeed sometimes made. I think it's absurd because the whole idea of... There are two ideas within the libertarian paternalism or the Nudge approach. And the first one is that you always, when you present citizens or the public with a choice, the choice has a certain structure or as they describe it, there is such a thing as a choice architecture. There's no, you know, there is no way to present people without a choice, without structuring it. What they are doing is allowing people complete freedom of action, but they're structuring the choice so that the casual person, the lazy person, the person who just decides without bothering, will make a judgment or will make a decision that other people consider reasonable. Let me tell you, it is vastly better than having a firm structure the choice in a way that is profitable to itself. So here there are some people, and that's a paternalistic element, who try to, try to you know, channel people to saving more and saving conservatively, but and to make such decisions future-oriented and generally viewed as sensible. But I don't think that anybody's freedom is truly abridged. Yeah, so in fact, as you point out, most of the choices we make when we choose a fund among different choices is already set up for us. And in many ways, that incentive is often maximized to the providers of these funds. And this is a way to balance some of that. I mean, in the context of 
the relationship between financial advisors and their clients, you know, I hope, I don't know what ethics rules are in place, but of course there are many, many opportunities for wrongdoing in different ways. That is, uh, you know, if you have advisors who are conflicted, who have conflicts of interest and so on, then whether they're conscious of it or not, they're going to give advice that will, at least on some occasions, be optimal because it is biased. And what is very important to realize is that it's not only people who are consciously engaged in fraud who give, who give bad advice. You know, we, we commonly say that, you know, surgeons advise surgery and radiation therapists advise radiation. And that's not because they need to make the money. It is really because that's what comes to their mind, a solution to people's problem. And unconscious bias is really an enemy of, uh, of good advice. Um, so, in fact, um, so instantly, congratulations on the success of your book, um, Thinking Thank Fast you. and Slow. And um, I, 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 believe it, I believe it took much more energy and time to write uh, even after uh, accounting for uh, you know, what you must have done for the biases that you'd get it done easily. Um, and it's a fairly ambitious book in the sense that um, I believe you state that you would like to change um, you know, the water cooler conversation uh, of America or, or ev everywhere um, to incorporate this, this idea of, of how to evaluate other people's judgments well, and decisions. You know, I mean, it's not all that ambitious because I didn't specify how large the how large a change I expect. I don't expect to make a large difference, but my idea is the following: to think properly about any topic, you need a rich vocabulary, and you need a vocabulary that is both rich and precise. And and to a very large extent, learning medicine, for example, is learning the vocabulary of illnesses. And once you have the term, it tells you something about the circumstances under which it appears, what you can expect, what are the mechanisms. All of this information is packed into a word. I'm trying quite deliberately in the book to enrich the terminology that people use in thinking about the decisions of other people. Now, the, I don't believe that the book is a self-instruction book. But I do believe that people anticipate the gossip of other people when they make their own decisions, and that people who anticipate more intelligent gossip are likely to make better decisions. So I've described the aim of my book as elevating the quality of gossip in discussions of judgment and decision-making. So, so gossip is a powerful feedback loop I by improving so. that. Yeah. And it's much easier. It's pleasant to gossip, and it's, it's even pleasant to gossip intelligently. And so I'm, I'm hoping to harness this large social form of, uh, force of gossip in, you know, in the service of the good. So, in fact, that brings an interesting question because, you know, the, the subject, a great part of the subject matter of the book is your long collaboration with the late colleague um, Amos Tversky. And, um, you know, as one reads it, those experiments span a wide variety of disciplines and fields. Now, clearly, behavioral finance is, is just one of them. And, mm -hmm. and a very big part of it. But are there other areas that you think where uh, the work has had a similar impact? Well, I mean, the work has had 
unexpectedly large impact in many areas. I mean, it has had a significant impact on the law. So there is a lot of discussion of you know rational punishment and of what are the implications. It has, of course, implications for uh, policy. So many of you know the nudges that are called behavioral economics. There is no reason to call them behavioral economics. They are applied social science, yeah. and uh, and that is you know I, I think that's a very important application of the work. It's been applied in political science. It's been applied in medical education. So the the ramifications mm -hmm. have been quite substantial of the work that Amos and I did, far greater than we ever expected, of course. And I was also thinking about um, your recent work on happiness. So the whole idea about governments and um, institutions in society trying to understand what makes people happier and implementing policies uh, around that. I'm very troubled by the label of happiness studies. I think it is... Well-being, happiness and well-being. Yeah, but even well-being, because I really think that there is a sense in which people perceive this as frivolous. I think there is an editorial in the Wall Street Journal today sort of pointing out to the frivolity of uh, happiness studies. I would like to see government policies explicitly directed to the reduction of human suffering. I think there is a wide agreement in society that suffering should be reduced, and measuring suffering is one way of improving, you know, simply the efficiency with which resources are allocated. I think there is not much debate about the quality of the goal. So I'm really unhappy about the focus on happiness and, and the focus on the positive, actually, and on positive psychology. I mean, I'm, I'm really quite old-fashioned in the sense that I would like to focus on reducing pain, both mental pain and physical pain. So um, I, I, I think, um, so that's very interesting because in this case, it's the terminology that then drives um, how people perceive the research yeah. and its implications. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, if it was called suffering studies instead of happiness studies, the whole thing would look different. People would ask different questions. It would have a different public image. It would attract different researchers, different funders. Uh, the relationship with health would be much closer. Uh, you know, it would completely... You wouldn't have things as happiness coaches, but, you know, which which may be a very good thing, but the focus on happiness troubles me. And this is, this is yet another wonderful example of an unconscious bias, a That's single right. word. The difference between focusing on happiness versus suffering can lead to completely different Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, outcomes. Absolutely. And it's, it, this is built, in, built into the language. So, you know, we, we say, we speak of depth and not of shallowness. You know, we speak of height and not of shortness. So, uh, the, that's, this is the way the language is, is built, and, and we focus on happiness, because that seems to be the mock term. So, um, so conclude, I, I simply want to ask you, what's next? What, what do you think is the most, ex with the caveat that, that human beings are terrible forecasters? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I should not be asked to make long term forecast because I don't believe in them. So all I can tell you is, you know, my impression about what's happening now. And what's happening now clearly 
both in psychology and to some extent in you know, the area of behavioral economics is brain research. And here you can make a forecast because many brilliant students are now studying this field of brain research and neuroeconomics. And, and you know that these students are going to be professors and that they're going to launch their careers in that. So for the next 15 years, there's going to be a substantial focus on, on brain studies of decision-making. And I expect there'll be major discoveries coming from that. Professor Kahneman, thank you for being here. It was really my pleasure. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.